This Dharma talk by Joan Sutherland Roshi, Living Dying, was given at Cerro Gordo Temple in Santa Fe, New Mexico, on October 6, 2011. Good evening, Bodhisattvas. Thank you very much for that lovely birthday serenade. Um, we are talking tonight about the reconciliation of dualities, continuing with that, and talking tonight about living and dying. So there seems something really appropriate about Melanie's having discovered a, a black widow spider in the door jam on this side leading outside. So if you use that door, the upper um, right corner is already occupied and just be careful as you go through. And she's going to try to relocate it to a happier spot for all later on. Um, so... <laughs> It seems kind of perfect to be talking about living and dying here as we really enter the autumn when the simultaneity of living and dying is all around us so clearly. The cottonwoods and the aspens turning away from summer with a final blaze. And at the same time, the um, chemise just coming into bloom. Uh, And this is a time that a lot of cultures have seen that the veil between the worlds is thin, that the the distances between here and there and us and them grow thinner and more translucent and more pierceable. It's more possible to move back and forth between them. Um, This question of living and dying, which is such a huge question for us, Uh, was called in in Zen, has been called in Zen, the great matter. And I I kind of love that name. This is the great matter, this question of why we live and why we die. And I was thinking that there is that largeness of it, for sure. And at the same time, it's also the most intimate of questions, why we live and why we die. What is closer to the bone? than that, what is more inherently a part of our wondering all the time than than that question. But in Zen, in the ancestral stream, there was the absence, there is the absence of a split that living and dying implies. As soon as you've got that and between them, you've got two things, living and dying. And in in the um, original languages of Zen, of Chan and Zen, there is no and there. There's only living, dying, or life, death, or birth, death. And so the great um, contemporary Zen philosopher, Abe Masao, said probably what we should call it rather than living and dying is uh, living, dying existence. So that the continuity is the existence. The continuity is the fact of something happening. And that it's a kind of continuum of experience, living, dying existence, where at one time living is more in the foreground and at another time dying is more, death is more in the foreground. Probably for most of us, um, living is more in the foreground, but that doesn't mean that it fills the whole stage because it doesn't. We know that the presence of things rising and falling all the time. And again, here in the autumn, there's, there's birth, death, birth, death, birth, death, birth, death, just, just endlessly. 
So the traditional response to this question of the great matter is that it is at once the motivation for us to practice, to resolve this, to come to some peace um, with this great question is a a giant engine of practice for for many people. And at the same time, um, the, the kind of basic approach to it or attitude towards it is that there isn't a great difference between the state of living and the state of dying. That if we have been walking through our lives, that death is really just taking another step, like every other step we've taken, except this time the ground doesn't come up to meet our feet. And we notice after a couple of steps that we're walking on the sky. And we just keep walking on the sky as we have on the earth. So while many traditions and certainly other Buddhist traditions have very elaborate practices of preparing for death and what to do at the time of dying and, um, and afterwards, the Chan and Zen attitude is pretty much, you know, how you live is how you'll die. What your life has been like will tell you a lot about what your death will be like because there isn't such a big difference, because it is just another step. So one of the old Chinese teachers, Fu Rong Daokai, said to his monks, and, and I chose this not because it's extraordinary, but because it's very ordinary, it's very typical of the way life and death were seen. He said, I'm not asking about the process of dying. I want to know about the great matter of death itself. Everyone, at that moment, at the moment of your death, the Buddha can't help you, the Dharma can't help you, the ancestors can't help you, all the teachers on earth can't help you, I can't help you, and the king of death can't help you. You must settle this matter now, and that's the key. That's the crux of what he's saying. You must settle this matter now. If you settle it now, the Buddha can't take it from you, the Dharma can't take it from you, the ancestors can't take it from you, all the teachers in the world, and even the king of death can't take it from you. So speak out now. What is the teaching of this very moment? Do you understand? Next year, new shoots will grow. The fretful spring wind never stops blowing. So to his list of things that can't help you, you know, we we might add, um, your stuff can't help you, your money can't help you, your education can't help you, all your professional achievements can't help you. None of those things have anything to do with that moment. They are not of that moment, except in the sense that they have been part of what has brought you to that moment and part of what you bring to it. So if there's a kind of um, startling quality to that, everything that you're working so hard on right now, none of it really um, applies, there's also a tremendous optimism because um, he and others were saying that there's something you can do now about it. There's, you can settle the great matter in this moment, and once you do that, it will be just like another step when you come to your death. Uh, you, you can 
come to reconcile this living, dying existence and find peace there. And the way you do that is in his in, in attempting to respond to his question, what is the lesson of this very moment? So Great Master Ma asked in another context, when he was asked, um, what is the meaning of Chan? He said, what is the meaning of this moment? That's all you need to know. That's all. <laughs> so that's what will matter in that other moment, what we understand of this moment. If you're alive right now, you'll be alive when you die. And we do it not so that we'll be alive when we die, or because if we do this, then things will go easier in our death. But we want to put ourselves into that stream of living, dying right now to carry us right through every threshold, through every threshold of our lives, and finally through that threshold into death. Settle it in this moment, and no one can take it away from you. So he asks, what is the teaching of this moment? And he answers himself, next year new shoots will grow. The fretful spring wind never stops blowing. So what is that? That's life going on. It's also death going on. It's life and death going on right now, all the time, without ceasing. Life, death, life, death, life, death, life, death. So that there is this feeling not only of being aware of death in our lives now, which of course we are, and I'm not going to go into, you know, every moment is rising and falling because you all know all that stuff. Um, and it's not so interesting. Um, that's certainly true. But um, Keizan, one of the great Japanese writers, talked about the um, what's underneath the robe. And we've spoken about what's underneath the robe, what's between your robe and your heart is intimacy. And he said there's something connected to that intimacy. When you forget the self and understand the true self, you will be alive in the midst of death, and, the, and in the dark your eyes will be bright. This is the intimate reality beneath the robe. Um, so when we turn our attention toward this in this way we are not trying to make this another self-improvement project which is one of the dangers I think of putting a lot of emphasis on special practices about death you know like we have to get our death right you know (laughs) I mean if if in the moment, in the time of our dying we're worrying about whether we're doing a good job or not I mean at what, at what moment in your life are you know are you should you not more just relax into what's happening and kind of be present for it instead of trying to work you know worrying about am I getting this right on the very threshold? So there was a Japanese poet Hasegawa Shume, um, and when he was dying, his loved ones were very worried about him. So they were trying to make his death a self-improvement project, and they were trying to get him to recite the Nembutsu Namu Amida Butsu, which is a devotional practice. And if you recite that enough, you'll be reborn in the pure land. So they they said, you know, just please, we really urge you, Namu Amida Butsu, Namu Amida Butsu, and he just he just turned to them and he said, thanks, thanks. 
And that was his Namo Amida Butsu. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you for life. Thank you for death. No problem. And there is this sense um, from the very beginning of the naturalness of it in the Tao Te Ching, which is a very old, the first Taoist text. It says, She holds nothing back from life. Therefore, she is ready for death, as a person is ready for sleep after a good day's work. So if that's the the basic attitude, which is one of simplicity and naturalness and a sense of what is is the thing that persists, what is the thing that is the through line between our experience now and our experience then, and how do we work on making that strong, making that through line strong and real and accessible to us, then um, there's a little bit of... of, um, Theory I wanted to put behind it because it's kind of it's kind of beautiful theory and might be helpful. It has to do with the trikaya, the three bodies of the Buddha and of everything else, which we've talked about in a number of different contexts. And I wanted to talk um, about it here in terms of living and dying, particularly in relationship to time. So the idea is that everything has three bodies simultaneously. And one body, the nirmanakaya, is the physical body, the body of form, the realm of cause and effect and the laws of physics and everything that we can perceive from the smallest to the largest, the material world. And um, the dharmakaya is the vast world of emptiness, the shunyata, the radiant world, the eternal world, the world that doesn't change. Like the world of Nirmanakaya, there's always coming and going and rising and falling and things are changing. And in the Dharmakaya, there's no change. There's a kind of eternal present moment. And then um, between them, the Sambhogakaya, which is the the body of, of dreaming. It's the liminal body between those two things where there's um, imagination, creativity, where things have emerged out of the vastness, but they haven't quite taken form yet, so they still have a kind of plasticity and changeability to them. Um, so in the, in the, uh, in the Nirmanakaya world, in the world of form, time is linear. We talk about time's arrow, that we have a sense of the past, the present, and the future, and that we're moving along this arrow, and we're here, and we're alive, and we're going to get there, and we're going to be dead. You know? And, and there's, there's a linearity and a cause and effect to, to time. Um, in the Dharmakaya, it's eternal. There is no time at all. There's only this, this present um, that that goes on and on and on and doesn't change. And in the Sambhogakaya, again, in this in-between state, there's no cause and effect. And so you know that in imagination and dream, things happen that aren't supposed to happen. They're not supposed to be connected or bouncing up next to each other. Um, because there is no cause and effect, there is no sort of this and then this and then this and then this. There's more this wild juxtaposition of surprising things, which is how metaphor and imagination work. Um, So when we're in the nirmanakai, when the nirmanakai is in the foreground, which is a lot of the time, 
we think about past, present, and future, and we think about things coming and going. So when we grieve, uh, when we grieve the death of someone else, or when we grieve the, the anticipation of our own death, what we're really grieving is that something was here, and then it's not. Or we can imagine that something that is here now will not be here at some other time. And that's a very mnemonicaya experience. It's here and then it's not here. And my reaction to that is grief. And there's nothing wrong with that at all. That's absolutely the... um, the fullest expression of our mnemonicaya experience. We deal with things rising and falling and changing. We deal with having and not having, having and losing. Um, Things we are attached to, people we love coming and going. And sometimes grief is the absolutely right, full, complete, nothing missing mnemonicaya response to that. So I'm not talking about replacing that view with a, you know, with a better view um, at all. But I am talking about adding something. I'm talking about seeing that the, that mnemonicaya view is one of three. So it's about a third of what's true. And something we can do is mix in the other two um, so that we have, we have three different views of, of w- what it means to lose either someone else or ourselves. Um, in the Dharmakaya, there is no coming and going. There is no rising and falling. There is no change in that way. What is here is always here. Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't leave. And that's, um, that's also true. I think, about, I, think I mentioned this a, a couple of weeks ago, this great conversation where um, someone who was going to become a great teacher was leaving his teacher, and his teacher said with some sadness, once you leave, it will be difficult for us to meet again. And um, this precocious young man responded, it will be difficult for us not to meet again. And that's the view of the Dharmakaya. It will be difficult for us not to meet again. Once having met, we are always met. We have always met, and we will always meet. So, again, um, Abe Masao says of this, Today does not bring us closer to eternity, but today, at this moment, eternity is completely manifesting itself. So when you have these three views together, you realize that today it doesn't bring us closer to eternity in the sense of, you know, we're a day older and so we're a day closer to our death, or possibly um, we're a day more mature in our practice, <laughs> and so we're getting closer and closer to eternity through, through our practice. That, um, we, you know, we hope will get us closer to eternity. But, but actually that, that it, you know, in the Dharmakaya aspect of things, eternity is already here here and already completely manifesting itself in every moment. And if we can touch that, if we can realize eternity manifesting in every moment right now at the same time that we realize that things rise and fall and that we gain and lose all the time, 
then we have responded to Furong, the Chinese teacher I quoted at the beginning, to, to Furong's exhortation that we settle the matter now. There is something you can know now that will make a complete difference. And then no matter what happens, living or dying, it's all right. You will feel a kind of freedom and you'll feel a kind of ease. Um, if eternity is completely manifesting itself right now, that means that our death is also already manifesting right now. Our death is not something that awaits us in the future. It's already here. So what's it like, you know, to imagine that? To imagine that it is not some unknown, surprising, disconcerting thing in the future, but already here already existing. Already we are accompanying it and it is accompanying us. We're not waiting for anything to happen. It's already happened. What's that like? It's already happened. There was a teacher named Baofu um, and when he was on his deathbed his attendant asked him if it should be that your time has really come, which would you prefer, to go or to stay? Okay, now that it's really, you know, we're right down to it, we're down to the nitty-gritty, what would you rather do? Would you rather go or would you rather stay? And Baofu just shouted at the top of his lungs, Dao! Like that. And the monk, um, who I want to find and ask to be at my deathbed, said, in that case, I won't disturb you any further. <laughs> so I don't know about a good death, but that's a well-accompanied death. So, you know, when Baofu shouted Dao, it, it seemed to me that what he was doing was saying, eternity is already here. You know, he was just naming what was already true. There is no coming and going, or if there is a coming and going, Fundamentally, it doesn't matter. It's already eternity manifesting itself in this moment and in the next moment when I stop breathing. It will be again. So what does coming and going mean in the context of Tao? Completely present, completely here. One of the places we feel the poignancy of death most, I think, is when um, people we love die. And as we get older, that becomes a more and more common experience. So we have, we have this feeling of, oh, it will be hard to meet again. You know, I won't see you again. I won't hear your voice again. And then we have this other answering voice saying, it will be hard not to meet again. Um, they are gone and they are here. We are gone, and we are here. Both things are true. There's a a beautiful question and answer in the koans. Someone asks, what about the ones who neither come nor go? And um, the question is about bodhisattvas, who don't come and go um, in, in, in the ordinary sense. What about, so what about that state when you have touched eternity, when you have felt the Dharmakaya, when you know 
that everything is already right here and everything will be already right there in the moment of our death. Um, What about when you don't worry about rising and falling and coming and going in that way? And the answer is, the stone woman calls them back from their dream of the world. The first time I heard that, I wanted to just put my head down and just take a nap. How fantastic that we get to be called back from our dream of the world. The stone woman is an old Chan image of, um, of the vastness. So the vastness, that's this, this great woman who does not change, who is eternal, made of stone, calls us back from our dream of the world. And it seems to me that when you juxtapose this question with this answer, what you're saying is you're not repudiating anything. You're not saying you have to pick one viewpoint or another. At the same time, yes, they neither come nor go. In their hearts, they neither come nor go. In their hearts, they have settled the great matter and are at peace so that there is no back and forth here and there. And... And, and, at some point, the stone woman will call them back from this dream of life, this dream of the world, and they can rest. That's true, too. Both things are true. And there's such a richness in that, such a rich view of what life is and what death is. So I think about... um, the idea in, in the Tibetan language where the word they chose to, trans, to translate um, emptiness, shunyata, the vastness, from Sanskrit, is a word that in Tibetan means um, the sign of something that was here but is gone. So if there's a, a place in the grass where there's an indentation because an animal spent the night there and the grass is still bent down, that's that word. If there's a Um, a place in the field where there's a clearing where nothing's growing because a house once stood there and burned down. That's that word. It's the traces of something gone that we still can see. We can see the traces and through those traces connect with what was once there. That that is their, um, their interpretation of what the vastness is. And um, if we, if we could imagine when those we love die that what we experience is not a tear in the fabric of things but a place where the grass is still um, shows the impression of their having been there then perhaps we can connect with the large view that they're now experiencing um, in the tea ceremony, there's a, a beautiful thing where um, the, the second person who's going to drink says to the first one, please, you go ahead of me. And so if we say to those, we love, please, you go ahead of me, and we can connect with that sense of the trace of them that is left, maybe that trace can become not just a location of mourning and of grieving, but a portal into that much larger place that they are in now. Can we connect to the vastness through that trace of them left in the world around us? Can we let their sudden and complete 
largeness pull an answering largeness from us in our lives now. I think the most um, consoling thing I ever read about death is from, uh, from Rilke. He said, Death is not beyond our strength. It is the measuring line at the vessel's brim. We are full whenever we reach it. There is no half-full vessel. Whenever you reach the measuring line at the, at the brim of the vessel, that's full whenever that is. And when we think about, can we, can we hold that for other people as other people die? Can we hold that their vessel was full? Um, can we accept that about our own lives, whatever their span, that, it is, that the vessel is full? And when I think about that, and I think about that sense of um, the, the dying of people we love and our imagination of our own dying as a portal into the vastness and not just a place of grieving. Um, I think about the Korean teacher Sansanim's fantastic suggestion that, you know, when he was asked, what, 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 do, what do Zen people, what do Korean people do about death? He said, I really have only one piece of advice to give you. As you're taking your last breath, ask, how can I help? And um, one of the ways, one of the millions of ways that that's so powerful to me is it's to recognize that it's just another step. It's not so different. If we would have asked before that, how can I help? Why not ask after that, how can I help? Why not have that continuity? between living and dying. Why not go with that attitude? Not, you know, oh my God, here we go. But here we go. How can I help? What, what will persist? What will not persist? What will happen? So, um, just finally then, to remember that, that we have often asked Um, as one of our fundamental questions in our practice, do you trust your life? Which is a very deep inquiry. Do I fundamentally trust life? Not to give me what I want all the time, not to satisfy my ego's needs, not to always be grand and wonderful and helpful and pretty and all of that. But do I trust it? Do I fundamentally trust it? And so I would add to that question, do I trust my death? Whatever it's going to be, however it appears, do I trust that? Some of us can see our deaths rise up from the ground and start walking toward us, you know, the moment we get a diagnosis or something happens like that. We can see it walking towards us. Some of us don't. It just happens in an instant. But whatever the case... Can we trust that in the same way that we trust our lives? And if in our practices we have come to trust our lives to a greater extent through this work we're doing together, can we extend that to include trusting our death? 
and can we extend that to trusting our living, dying existence and not making that separation, healing that apparent duality so that there is a one trust of a one existence in this moment and in that moment and in every moment in between and probably afterwards as well. Thank you. These talks are made available through your donations to Cloud Dragon, the Joan Sutherland Dharma Works. To learn more about her teachings and to make a tax-deductible contribution, please visit our donate page at joansutherlanddharmaworks.org.